This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. Before the show starts, I'd like to ask you to consider subscribing to News from Science. You've heard from some of our editors on here, David Grimm, Mike Price. They handle the latest scientific news with accuracy and good cheer, which, which is pretty amazing considering it can sometimes be over 20 articles a week. And you hear from our journalists. They're all over the world writing on every topic under the sun, and they come on here to share their stories. The money from subscriptions, which is about 50 cents a week, goes directly to supporting nonprofit science journalism, tracking science policy, our investigations, international news, and yes, when we find out new mummy secrets, we report on that too. Support nonprofit science journalism with your subscription at science.org news. Scroll down and click subscribe on the right side. That's science.org news. Click subscribe. Welcome to the Science Podcast for November 7th, 2014. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, we have David Grimm up first with some online news stories, and then we hear from Stephanie Karst about growing norovirus in the lab. Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, advancing science, engineering, and innovation throughout the world for the benefit of all people. AAAS, the Science Society, at www.aaas.org. Now we have David Grimm. He's the editor for our online daily news site, here to talk about some recent online stories. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up, we have a story on managing our social lives on and offline. To some, it may seem like we have a lot more friends now in the virtual world than we ever did in the physical world. I, for example, have 148 Facebook friends. I just checked today. But that might not be the case. Both settings might push up against the same limit known as Dunbar's number. So, Dave, how many friends can we have according to Dunbar's number? Well, at least in the real world, Dunbar's number, which is a number proposed by a scientist named Robin Dunbar, proposes that we can only have about 150 friends. These are people that we at least have semi-regular conversations with, emails, whatever. And the thinking is, is because our brains have a limit to how many people we can actually keep track of. And the thinking is that that number is around 150. Beyond that, our brains just can't handle that many friends. And so the question is, is online life making sociality easier for us? What is some of the evidence they found in this study that maybe it does, maybe it doesn't? Well, this study actually came about kind of in a fun way. It arose from a very popular, in fact, one of the most popular free browser-based games in Europe. It's called Partis, and it's basically a, it's a sci-fi game. You build alliances, you fight people, you defend things, you make money, you steal from people, you get stolen from, all this good stuff. And it turns out that this game was actually invented by a doctoral student in a lab at the Medical University in Vienna. And the person that ran the lab said, hey, one of my students just invented this. And this game has about 7,000 active players. Can we actually track 
these players in the game then figure out just how many relationships they're able to form in the game. When they looked at these relationships in the game, were they forming friendships? They were. Well, people formed a lot of different kinds of relationships. They form alliances. They have close friends, people that they interact with a lot during the game, and just sort of acquaintances, people that they don't interact with as much. The interactions in this game sort of mirror those in the real world, where we have friends that we're very close with and friends that maybe we only communicate with very occasionally. Did these virtual friendships run up against Dunbar's number? It did indeed. It, the researchers found that the largest alliance in Pardis was made up of only 136 members, which is very close, but does not surpass Dunbar's number. That's not the same as having 136 friends for me and 136 friends for you, and then, you know, we overlap. This is a, a unit of people. Were there any other indications that friendships online mirrored those offline? You know, as I mentioned before, these people in the game could form close relationships, and they could form sort of more casual relationships. And just like in the real world, they had a much smaller group of friends that they had these close relationships with and a much larger group of friends that they had these more casual relationships with. And all this suggests that if we're seeing the same thing in the real world and online, that there may actually be something to this idea that our brains can only handle a certain number of social connections, at least handle them well, which really may put a limit on the number of people we can be friends with. Next up, we have a story on an unfolding drama at the center of the Milky Way. Over the summer, many astronomers were looking forward to sitting back and watching some serious astronomical fireworks from the center of the galaxy. What were they waiting for, Dave? They were waiting for an object called G2 to collide with a black hole at the center of the Milky Way and for the black hole to rip this object apart and create those fireworks you were talking about. So there were no fireworks, and now there's a bit of speculation about why. Some are suggesting that the identity of G2 is the key to the answer here. What are some of the ideas about what this object might be? Well, astronomers first started calculating G2's trajectory in 2012. and At that time, they thought it was a cloud of gas, and that would have created fireworks because as this cloud really approached close to the black hole, the intense gravity of the black hole would have torn it apart dragged it towards the black hole surface, producing a shower of radiation, i.e. celestial fireworks. But, you know, as we said, that's not what happened. And so a new team took some more observations of this object, and they conclude it's not a gas cloud at all, but rather a giant star. In fact, a star is so big that it's only twice the mass of our sun, but a hundred times the size. And this isn't just any kind of star. This is suggesting that this might actually be a pair of merging binary stars? That's what they think, just because of the unusual nature of this star. It could have been a star that was actually two stars that were orbiting each other. And what happens is when these binary systems get very close to black holes, the gravity of the black hole can actually make the two stars merge together into this one giant star. And that's what the researchers think they're seeing here. But not everyone agrees with this new identity for G2. Some are saying, no, it's still a gas. Why are they holding their ground? Well, just because other observations suggest that G2 is behaving like a cloud of gas. For example, astronomers have said that it stretched out before the approach to the black hole and pulled together again after it, which is more consistent with a gas cloud than with a binary star system. Ultimately, it's still a little bit unclear exactly what G2 is. It sort of remains, for now, a cosmic mystery. Lastly, we have a story on where the penis comes from. It's one of those questions that not many people may wonder about, but scientists have asked it anyway. Where does the penis come from? In this case, Dave, are they asking about this in terms of evolution, development, philosophy? <laughs> the middle one, development. Um, this isn't about the evolution of the penis 
or why some people have a penis, but more importantly, how does in the very early embryonic stages, how does the penis form in the first place? And the scientists didn't just look at people, they actually looked at mice, lizards, chicks, and snakes. What are some of the differences that they saw in the formation of the penis among these different organisms? Well, that was, was really interesting. They tracked the cells in the early embryo that go on to form the penis. They want to figure out where do these cells come from in the embryo and how do they form the penis. When they looked at snakes and lizards, they found that the penis arises from what will become or in snakes, what would have been the beginnings of the back legs. Obviously, snakes don't have legs, but at some point they did, and they still have a lot of the early developmental mechanics to form them. And so in both snakes and lizards, the penis is actually coming from this region that, that actually will also form the legs. Whereas in mice, some of the cells destined to become the tail become the penis. And in the chicken, it's a little bit of both. Some of the cells come from the would-be tail and some from the would-be hind limb. But the commonality among all these animals is the cloaca. How does that organ or proto-organ relate to the development of the penis? The cloaca is a cavity that's destined to become part of the lower part of the gut. And what the scientists found is that signals from the cloaca initiate penis formation in each animal. But the location of where this happens is really key. So, for example, in the rodents, the cloaca is back by the tail to be and taps on the nearby cells for the penis, whereas the snake cloaca is close to where the two limbs are supposed to sprout out. And therefore, that explains why snakes, believe it or not, if you didn't know this, actually have two penises instead of one. They actually only use one at a time. <laughs> right. But they do have two, and this helps explain why they have two. Okay. So these findings, first of all, generalize to people, and then can they give us insight into some of the malformations that are out there? Well, obviously, we're related to a lot of these animals, so it's thought that a lot of these things may apply to humans as well. What's really interesting is that there are millions of people born every year with genital malformations, and this research could potentially help scientists understand why these malformations happen and ideally ways to cure them. And going back for a second to the evolution of the penis, does having different sources of the progenitor cells in different animals suggest something about how penises evolved? That's the hope. That The hope is that when we understand more about this, not just about the applications for humans, but actually understanding an even more fundamental question about why do we have penises? Why do some of us have penises in the first place? Okay, what else is on the site this week, Dave? Well, Sarah, we've got a story about a robot that makes you feel like there's a ghost in the room. Also a story about how bats jam each other's frequency. We've got a cool video and a guest star you may be familiar with. <laughs> For Science Insider, our policy blog, we've got an analysis of the midterm elections in the United States and what impact that's going to have on science in the U.S. Also a story about why older papers are being increasingly remembered and cited. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, sir. David Grimm is the editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. You can check out the latest news and the policy blog, Science Insider, at news.sciencemag.org. The simple norovirus responsible for vast amounts of gastrointestinal distress around the globe has been impossible to culture in the lab, despite decades of effort. Now Stephanie Karsten colleagues have come up with a way of growing them inside of human B-cells. I spoke with her about how the team accomplished this and what it means for the prevention and treatment of the havoc norovirus can wreak on cruise ships and retirement homes. So noroviruses are 
a major cause of gastroenteritis worldwide. And the primary roadblock to studying them has been that we haven't been able to grow them in, in the laboratory. So we haven't had a cell culture system with which to amplify the virus. And our study tackles that problem head on and um, was really driven by a couple observations that we made in the mouse norovirus model, where we discovered that B cells are targets of infection. And we also found that intestinal bacteria enhance infection in the mouse. And that led us to develop the first cell culture system for a human norovirus, specifically infecting a human B cell line in the presence of appropriate intestinal bacteria. Let's talk about norovirus in a more general way first. How big of a problem is it and what does it do to you? So noroviruses are a global problem. They're the leading cause of gastroenteritis outbreaks across the globe. So just to give numbers to it, there are about 20 million symptomatic infections each year in the United States. They're now considered the leading cause of severe childhood diarrhea in our country and likely a much bigger problem in developing countries. When you think of the stomach flu, that's more likely caused by a norovirus. So it's very severe vomiting and diarrhea that typically lasts a couple of days. Is this when we think of, say, these epidemics that sweep across a cruise ship or a retirement home, is that usually a norovirus? Absolutely. Yeah. So they are sometimes commonly dubbed the cruise ship virus, which the cruise ship industry hates. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, most of the cruise ship outbreaks are caused by noroviruses and they're a huge problem in retirement homes. So a lot of the outbreaks in our country are actually in that setting. And how is norovirus transmitted from person to person? That's one of the main issues with trying to halt outbreak amplification is that it can be spread in several ways. So it's primarily spread fecal orally, not surprisingly, but it does also spread really efficiently person to person. So contaminated food sources, contaminated water. Once a person is infected, they can contaminate fomites or inanimate objects and spread the virus that way as well, in addition to aerosolized vomitous particles. What kind of virus is a norovirus? So they are positive sense RNA viruses. So they have a single piece of RNA. They do not have envelopes. Um, and they're very hardy in the environment. So they have a very simple but hardy structure that surrounds the RNA genome. What's been the treatment for norovirus patients up until now? Very limited. So we have rehydration as an option in very severe cases, and really that's the only way that we've been able to treat them. As far as prevention goes, there are clinical trials right now on non-replicating virus particles, which are called virus-like particles, or VLPs, for noroviruses. There have been two of those where they've challenged people after vaccinating, and they've shown modest short-term efficacy. So there is some optimism there, but it's complicated because there are many different norovirus strains. As you mentioned at the beginning, the B cell is what you looked at as a target or an entry point for the norovirus. How did you decide to study that cell in particular? We knew from studies with mouse noroviruses that other types of immune cells in particular macrophages and dendritic cells, supported infection. But those didn't seem to be targets for the human virus. One observation that my lab made quite a few years ago is that when we stained intestinal sections of mice infected with mouse noroviruses, we could detect viral antigen in B-cell zones along the intestinal tract. Um, So that was our first clue, and that finding has been reproduced by other groups in different mouse strains. There's also a human norovirus animal model in the chimpanzee, and this was led by Kim Green's group at NIH. So when they infect chimpanzees with a human norovirus, they can detect virus antigen in both dendritic cells and B cells. So those were our major clues. 
once you had a cell system in place where you could observe infection, what were you able to learn about this type of virus? So I would say the the most substantial finding that we've had using the cell culture system so far has been the dependence of the virus on intestinal bacteria. And again, our first clue that those might be important came from studies in our mouse model, where if we depleted mice of their intestinal microbiota prior to virus infection, that actually reduced the titers of virus within the in vivo infection. So we tested that in our in vitro system as well with the human noroviruses, where we applied either unfiltered stool that has virus and bacteria, or we filtered it to remove the bacteria, and the filtration reduced virus infection. And that was quite a big surprise that intestinal bacteria are acting as a cofactor for infecting target cells by a virus. And now that you have the cell system set up, does it tell you, does it give you any clues as to why it's been so hard to study the virus in the lab? We have garnered clues from our work. So the system that we've set up is still, unfortunately, not very efficient. So there are still mysteries to be solved. But we think that putting the two pieces together, so having the right cell type being the B cell, as well as the cofactor, which is a particular carbohydrate that the bacteria expresses, putting those two pieces together was really key to getting the infection to work in an in vitro system. Because they infect B cells, is that... Is that where all these symptoms of the norovirus infection come from? That's a great question, and that we don't have any answers to right now. It would seem surprising that infection of a B cell would have such dramatic effects on the intestinal epithelium. So one thing that we wonder is whether virus being secreted from the B cell or some virus protein secreted from the B cell is having effects on the overlying epithelial cells which is actually the pathogenic mechanism that leads to the disease. Right, so the virus is attacking a B cell, B cells are doing something else, and then that's causing the inflammation in the intestine and all this other great stuff. And now that there's a better way to study norovirus, how might these findings help with prevention and treatment down the road? Innumerable ways. So (laughs) the first, yeah, so first off, we can now test antiviral drugs. So we didn't really have a system with which we could test effectiveness of drugs before. And now we can actually test whether they can block replication of the virus in a cell culture dish. Um, We can also test the functionality of antibodies. So we can test whether antibodies that people generate during a natural infection can neutralize viral infectivity. And that's really key to designing an effective vaccine. And we can also hopefully start designing novel vaccine candidates such as live attenuated viruses instead of these non-replicating particles, which are likely to be more immunogenic and hopefully more effective at preventing future infections. Now, if the virus requires bacteria, or at least it's very helpful to have the bacteria around in order to infect, I mean, does that mean that norovirus could be treated with antibiotics? So that's a very complicated question, (laughs) and um, my answer to that would be I would not suggest it because the bacteria themselves are likely very important for maintaining intestinal homeostasis even during an infection. They are likely important for development of immune responses, and the complexity comes from the fact that we don't know exactly which intestinal bacteria are important for infection. There's probably a wide variety of them that would support viral infection, So you would have to wipe out a lot of them, which as far as antibiotic-resistant bacteria, I think is a, a scary thought. Stephanie, thanks so much for talking with me.
It's been my pleasure. Thank you. Stephanie Karsten colleagues write about an in vitro culture system for norovirus. This Week in Science. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and many other places, or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.